0: This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Weiner. How to teach American history has probably never been more controversial than it is right now. Since the Black Lives Matter protests of summer 2020, at least four states have required Black history to be part of the curriculum, and seven more have established new courses on Native American history or Asian American history. And meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is campaigning for president, promising to stop woke history, stop teaching about slavery and its legacy of institutional racism. For comment, we turn to Adam Hochschild. He's an award-winning author. We've often talked about his books here. They include the classic King Leopold's Ghost about colonialism in Congo. And my favorite, Bury the Chains, about how a small group of people started the movement that ended slavery in the British Empire and eventually everywhere. His most recent book is American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. And he's a contributor to the New York Review, where he wrote recently about competing versions of American history. We reached him today at home in Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, remind us about Florida's Stop Woke Act and similar laws in other states. What is their declared objective? Well,
1: all over the country right now, we have the right wing sort of testing out different parts of the cultural battlefield. I think one of the things that kicked this off was in the wake of George Floyd's murder, there were statues that tumbled down everywhere, statues of Confederate heroes, of Robert E. Lee, of Jefferson Davis, and so forth. And a lot of people in the South especially, but not entirely in the South, are very attached to that history. And I think rising politicians like uh, Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida and elsewhere are seeing this part of the cultural battlefield as a place to keep on fighting the old civil war and in a way to fight the new civil war where the claim they make is that uh, liberals and radicals and progressives of all kinds are trying to make us feel bad about ourselves as a country and we should feel better about ourselves and proud about our history so the latest round of the cultural battlefield is the history wars.
0: Ron DeSantis has explained that uh, their goal in Florida is to forbid teaching that could make, as they put it, someone feel guilty or ashamed about past actions by other members of the same race, color, sex, or national origin. Who is this someone who might feel guilty or ashamed? Do they mean white men born in the USA? I think they do. And I
1: think they are appealing very much to that part of the electorate. There's a deeper agenda behind this, which is what kind of America in the future they want to see.
0: And I understand that you found what you call the dream educational agenda for the right. This is the curriculum that has no guilt and no shame about uh, what white people have done. Where did you find this agenda?
1: Well, I was fascinated to find that for free, you could download uh, 3,268 pages of advice for teachers of American history at every level from kindergarten through high school from the website of Hillsdale College. And Hillsdale College, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, is a small Christian-oriented, Uh, almost entirely white right-wing college in Michigan, which has a very conservative curriculum focused on the great books, the classics of Western thought, that kind of thing. But they are very evangelical about preaching this part of the world outside of Hillsdale's quite small campus. The college is very well-endowed. Among their their, uh, contributors has been the family of... uh, Betsy DeVos, Trump's Secretary of Education, and her brother, Eric Prince, who's a Hillsdale graduate and the founder of the Blackwater Mercenary Group. And they and many other people have given Hillsdale huge amounts of money. It's got an endowment of almost a billion dollars, which is an enormous amount for a very small college. And they put out curriculum materials and other material for people wanting
0: to teach American history
1: in their conservative worldview.
0: And I understand that Hillsdale has something to do with Ron DeSantis's project in Florida.
1: Right. He has hired people from Hillsdale to help him revamp the Florida school curriculum. And so Hillsdale is sort of his intellectual consigliere in uh, trying to revamp Florida's educational system.
0: Well, you've read the you 3,000 pages of the Hillsdale American History Curriculum. Just want to ask you about some of the the flashpoints uh, here. What do they say about slavery?
1: To their credit, they acknowledge that slavery was a bad thing. <laughs> oh, and God. that it could be very <laughs> brutal okay. and cruel to the people in it. Uh, but they seem to go out of their way to... Soften it in a couple of interesting ways. For instance, even though they announced they made clear that slavery was very cruel uh, to the slaves, they said nothing about the systematic, widespread rape that was associated with American slavery, as indeed in slavery, with slavery in almost any country where it's been practiced. So Thomas Jefferson's name is mentioned hundreds of times. Uh, during these thousands of pages, but Sally Hemings is never. They also soften it in other way. Uh, this 1776 curriculum, which is what these thousands of pages of stuff is called, uh, urges teachers to, and I'm quoting, consider with students the significance of the Constitution not using the word slave and instead using the word person. Refusing to use the word slave avoided giving legal legitimacy to slavery. The use of the word person forced even slaveholders to recognize the humanity of
0: the slave. Sean Wilentz wrote a book in part about this sentence in the Constitution and how it got there. We've talked about it on this show. It is true that there was a huge battle at the Constitutional Convention about whether to use the word person instead of the word slaves. And the slaveholders, of course, fought bitterly to prevent this from happening because they saw what the New Englanders were trying to do. But it certainly did not force slaveholders, as the Hillsdale curriculum says, to recognize the humanity of the slave. Absolutely. And of
1: course, a lot of other things in the Constitution, like the Three-Fifths Clause and the Fugitive Slave Clause, in fact, does force not just the slave states, but the other states to recognize those human beings as slaves and not as people.
0: And what does the um, 1776 curriculum say about Native Americans?
1: It says, the contact between indigenous North American and European civilizations resulted in both benefits and afflictions for Natives and colonists alike. And was troubled by many misunderstandings.
0: Oh man! <laughs> it was a hard time for both of them.
1: It was. You could almost <laughs> say there were many misunderstandings between Hitler and the Jews. There I mean, were, really.
0: That's yeah, true. And then, more recently, uh, what do they say, for example, about FDR and the New Deal, which is sort of the model for progressives today about what government might be able to accomplish someday soon. Well,
1: to their credit, they include some of FDR's speeches, but they want you to take them in the right way, which is from Hillsdale's point of view, to understand that the New Deal kind of was a further step in the process of creating a fourth branch of government called the administrative state, Uh. you know, where we have the three Branches that those great framers of the Constitution thought of. And then in the 20th century and beyond, in a sinister way, this fourth branch, the administrative state has snuck in. You know, they make analogies between people being regulated by the administrative state and the colonists rebelling against being regulated by the British king across the Atlantic Ocean.
0: The Constitution, you emphasize, is a very important part of the 1776 Hillsdale curriculum. You say they're defenders of the Electoral College, which of course has been criticized by people like us as a profoundly anti-democratic institution, which of course indeed was the purpose of the founders to prevent direct election of the president by creating this complicated structure Why do the authors of the 1776 curriculum think that the Electoral College was a good idea? Oh, and I'm quoting
1: from the curriculum. It says you should tell middle and high school students that the Electoral College system has, quote, forced presidential candidates to address the concerns, not merely of large population centers like cities, but of rural and more remote populations. Now, this doesn't mention, of course, nowhere in all these thousands of pages is it mentioned that it's possible for somebody to win the electoral vote and lose the popular vote, something we've seen happen a number of times now in recent decades. And incidentally, when we had the last such flap over an election result, which was, of course, a 2020 uh, election result, where uh, Donald Trump supporters were trying to introduce, you know, fake slates of electors supposedly elected in states where he lost by a narrow margin, the majority leader of the Michigan State Senate testified that one of the people who pressured him to submit to the House of Representatives a false alternate slate of pro-Trump electors was Robert E. Norton II, vice president of Hillsdale College.
0: Wow. And in your critique of the 1776 Hillsdale College curriculum in the New York Review, you say the most important thing about it really is not what's in it, it's what's not in it. Please explain.
1: Well, I think we all know that vast amounts of power in this country are not political. Uh, There was a study done by the Institute for Policy Studies a few years ago that showed that the three richest Americans, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, and Warren Buffett, today I think Elon Musk would be in the mix even at the very top of it. The personal wealth held by those three guys was equal to that of the personal wealth held by the bottom half, that is more than 150 million people of the American population economically. Well, when you have a, a country where the distribution of wealth is so unjust, you know, wealth is a kind of power. It's something that gets passed from one generation to the next. It influences what your choices are in life. It, it influences how much of the world is open to you, what the possibilities are. This is a kind of power that simply doesn't get considered when you focus on the three branches of government and the Senate and the House of Representatives and the Supreme Court and so on. And they're vast power centers. We all know, for instance, the extent to which Amazon has become in the last 20 years a part of everybody's life. The power that one company has to change the face of communities by putting mom and pop businesses out of work. These are the kinds of power that just focusing on the genius of the founding fathers, simply get ignored. But I think the wielding of economic power and the enormous influence it has over our lives is just a crucial part of the American story today.
0: The right has their ideas about what young people should learn about American history, and of course, so does our side. And reshaping our understanding of our past has been the work most recently of the 1619 Project, launched originally by the New York Times Magazine in response to the Black Lives Matter movement in 2019 under the leadership of Nicole Hannah-Jones. Their basic argument is that slavery and its legacy have been a tremendous force continuing to shape our present as well as our past. This started out as a special issue of the magazine, it became a big best-selling book, a podcast a children's book now it's a six-part documentary series on hulu that will be shown in schools in some schools for you know the next decade you have watched the hulu series it's very different from a textbook because it features nicole hannah jones herself as the narrator and protagonist What did you think of the TV series on Hulu of the 1619 Project? What does it accomplish, and maybe what does it leave out? There's some excellent material in it,
1: and I would recommend that series to people. To me, the most forceful part of that six-part series was the fourth episode, has the title Capitalism. And there is an extraordinary juxtaposition in that segment. At one point, Hannah Jones is talking to a Berkeley historian named Caitlin Rosenthal. They're at an archive in Louisiana looking at the uh, handwritten ledger that is recording the week's plantings at a Mississippi slave plantation called Pleasant Hill. And you go down the column of each column of the ledger, there's a slave's name, just one name. Slaves didn't have last names. And then day by day for the week, Monday through Saturday, the number of pounds of cotton that that man or woman, that enslaved man or woman picked that day. You know, The daily tally, their labor being translated into measurable units that their owner can keep track of. Then the film cuts to a scene in an Amazon warehouse And then we are talking to one of the organizers of the successful drive to unionize workers at the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island in New York. And this guy is also talking about picking things, picking items off the shelf, and how Amazon is monitoring the number of items per hour that you pick. And you realize here again, a giant corporation is Monetizing the units of labor that can be extracted from an individual human being. And of course, you don't pick enough of these items in an hour, you lose your job. Now, I don't mean to say that Amazon workers are slaves. They're not, you know, they're paid, they go home at the end of the day, they're, you know, free to watch TV commercials for products they can't afford. <laughs> but there is something eerie about the continuity there and the inhumanity with which these people are treated. And I really do think that the efforts by uh, people at these ununionized workplaces who've started to organize in the last couple of years, Amazon, Starbucks, Trader Joe's, and many more, are really in the forefront of the battles for social justice in this country today.
0: Adam Hochschild, his article, History Bright and Dark, appears in the New York Review. Adam, thanks for talking with us today.